um, several months ago as I, I was charting out the preaching schedule plan for the Bible passages that we'll uh, look at together, I saw this thing that Advent would be short um, because fourth Sunday is on Christmas Eve. So I wanted to have a good setup for Advent so that we'd hit the ground running and we would... Advent always feels so short to me. The, the longing that gets going and suddenly Christmas is there. The last Sunday of the Christian year is next Sunday, Christ the King Sunday. Uh, and it's common in Christian tradition to consider the exalted Christ, to consider Christ on the throne and to have in view his return. So as I was planning out, anticipating running start, um, I, I thought it would be, yeah, let, it would be fitting We'll follow the lectionary that leads us into thinking about the second coming. So this was set, uh, and then this turmoil in Israel began, uh, and a month ago, so there's been quite a lot of conversation around these things. It's getting energy uh, and worry, so understandably, people are asking themselves, are these the signs of the times? How should we be trying to interpret these things? And it is not my intention, it is not my intention to read signs or make predictions. That's not happening this morning. Um, we, what, so what I'm saying is we typically, in the whole history of the church, at this time in the Christian year, think about the second coming. It's not because of what's happened. Last Sunday, we concluded 2 Corinthians uh, with a recognition that it is right, good, and helpful, and a core part of the Christian worldview. It's a part of our creedal statement. We, we've spoken it this morning already to hold, hold tightly the imminent return of Christ. So our, our teaching about justice, teaching about integrity, eternal moral norms, human dignity, basing our actions on these qualities of the eternal kingdom. They, they don't flow just from God's design. We don't just rest them on Genesis. They flow from the everlasting new heavens and new earth. They, they flow from design, but also back from what shall be. Those are our reference points. We have to have in mind a vision of where all is set right. That's what we talked about last week. The end guides how we behave. We think and we act according to the end to which we're moving. And it's always been this way in the Christian tradition. So as we saw last week, without a coming judgment... Without the verdict of innocence because of the cross, Christians have no more hope than anyone else. We need the verdict of innocence. And so this has always been a concern for Christians and it's where the church has done well. We've held it in mind. And we're going to bring it in focus this morning as we look at 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. So you should turn there if you 
have a Bible with you. 1 Thessalonians 5. Uh, it seems that the church in Thessalonica had endured a season of trouble shortly after Paul had been with them and planted that church. This letter followed not long on the heels of his planting that church when he had been, it, he'd passed through Berea, Athens, and then he'd come down to Corinth, and he'd been in Corinth, or he worked in Corinth for 18 months. It seems that it was while he was in Corinth that he's heard about their trouble. He mentions in this letter them receiving the word in much affliction. In chapter 2, verse 14, he says, You suffered the same things from your countrymen as the churches in Judea suffered from the Jews who killed both the Lord Jesus and the prophets and drove us out and displeased God and opposed all mankind. So they're suffering from their countrymen. Something like being driven out. They feel unwelcome in their own town. And then at the beginning of chapter 3, he says that he sent Timothy to check on them, to establish and exhort them in the faith, so that no one be moved by these afflictions. For we were destined for this. He has concern that this is going to cause some of them to perhaps fall away or flee. So even while he was with them, he says, he told them, we would suffer these things. You will suffer afflictions. And now in chapter 3, verse 4, he says, it has come to pass. I told you it was coming. It's come to pass. So this church in Thessalonica, they, uh, they're struggling with hostility. It appears also from the letter's context that it's something about this time of hostility from their countrymen. It's something about this affliction that's leading them to wonder, how long, when, how are these things going to be set right? Is this our future? Or is it always going to be like this? Things in Thessalonica are off. They, they're wrong. They're facing false accusation. They're facing injustice. It is not supposed to be like this. They feel it. They're losing friends. They're losing family. They're losing business. They want to be vindicated. If you've ever experienced injustice, there's this burning desire for vindication. This is false, what's happening. And so naturally, they wonder and they ask, when is the king going to return? When is he going to make all things new? You talked about this, Paul. When's this happening? Then at the end of chapter 4, Paul answers some questions about those who have died. This gives us another insight. It appears the Thessalonians were worried that they would miss out on the everlasting kingdom. Christ will return. He will rule forever. But they worry that those who die before that return will miss out. Those who already have died, maybe they will miss out. They'll miss the window. But you have to be there. The idea here is you've got to be there when he comes or you're not going to be part of the everlastingness. It's going to kick off from there. 
And if you died before, sorry. Paul corrects this notion. If you've ever had an inkling of that, get rid of that. That is to be corrected. Nobody who has received Christ as Lord will miss enjoying the everlasting kingdom. In fact, he says, verse 16 in chapter 4, the dead in Christ will rise first. They're not missing out. They're going to rise first. Then those who are alive at that moment will join them in meeting the Lord in the air. So let me pause on this image. This is a great image. It's sometimes been misunderstood. It's an image of reception, receiving. Chapter 4, verse 17. The verb used for meeting the Lord in the air. It's the verb for going out to welcome someone who's coming. That's a guess. This is a, a, a timely image for us. Thanksgiving. If you're hosting a Thanksgiving feast, you might have somebody posted out. For us, it's Mariah. Guests arrive. There's a welcoming committee to receive those people and bring them in. In the ancient world, this is the meeting that a town would arrange if they were receiving a visit from a king, a governor, a dignitary, a general. A group would go out singing, dancing. I have personal images of this in Rwanda, going to visit local churches. Every, every time you arrive, there's a group that comes out to sing you along the way. They're dancing, they're hugging. That's what's going on here. Flowers, music. It's that kind of meeting when the king above all kings comes to his own. When he makes known his second coming, that's what happens. So all who are his will be eagerly swept up to greet him on his arrival. The long-awaited deliverance has arrived. The long-awaited moment. Restoration is at hand. The dawn is breaking. Of course we want to welcome that. Revelation, the book of Revelation, shows that this meeting is part of the recreation when the Lord is going to establish the new heavens and the new earth. And so... Here, we will always be with the Lord. This meeting, the books are opened, recreation happens, and he leads us back into the new heavens and new earth. That's all in view here. That's all in view as Paul turns to the question of how are we to live in light of the coming day? As we move into chapter 5 here. How are we to live in light of that second advent? In chapter 5, verses 1 to 11, Paul says, Now, concerning the times and the seasons, you have no need to have anything written to you, for you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. I... This is interesting. I think it is interesting that despite the many ways that this idea is clearly stated in the New Testament, the idea of uncertainness, of timing, Christians refuse to accept ignorance on this matter. Refuse it. 
We insist on speculating, and apparently the Thessalonians had the same issue that we continually have. They had been adequately instructed. At least in Paul's mind, they had been. You have no need for me to write this to you. We've talked about it. Is there in the Gospels what Jesus had said on the subject is known to you? You won't know. Nobody knows. Not even the angels in heaven. Jesus said this clearly. Not even the Son knows the day and the hour, but only the Father. Until the time comes. So this, uh, I, this probably should be encouraging that it's not a new problem we have. Even the Thessalonians with Paul had this issue. But the unknowing itself, it's an important factor for the course of the world. It's an important factor for how different people respond to the delay of the coming king. How different people respond to the creator's judgment. The, the delay factor. So in verses 3 to 11, Paul develops this idea of the coming like a thief in the night. He's showing that it has differing effects within the kingdom and outside the kingdom. This knowledge, or just the delay itself, has differing effects. So in verses 3 to 4, we can see there's a negative aspect in the surprise of his unexpected coming. Like a thief in the night. That has a negative feel to it. For those, and here he develops the negative aspect. For those who don't want God to come, his delay is desired. It, it's good that he stays away. And his coming is unwanted. And so they can say, they say, oh, we have peace and security. There's peace and security. This is like the vineyard workers in Jesus' parable. They've said, we killed the heir. Now the vineyard will be ours. So the thought of his coming, put that off. No, we've got the vineyard is ours. Paul he then brings in an alarming metaphor for their situation, comparing it with birth. So like a baby's conception and growth and development in the womb. The rejection of Jesus as Lord has its own life and course of development. A posture of rejection of the Lord grows. Rejecting even the thought that there's going to be judgment grows. And then when the labor pains come, there's going to be a birth. What has been nurtured will come forth. And so what is born, it's going to be what has been conceived, what has grown, what's been nurtured. So when the labor pains start, it's too late to consider repairing. It's too late to consider if rejecting Jesus was a good idea. If a person conceived and nurtured destruction and fed a life set against Christ, grew a life set against Christ, destruction is what will come. That's birth, and they will not escape. On the other hand, verse 4, 
the negative aspect isn't for those in Christ. So Paul, he's now going to play with this image, play with the idea of light and darkness, night and day, what happens at night, what happens in the day. So he's, he's going to play on this, the darkness of the, when, the coming, when Christ comes. Those who are Christ's are not in darkness. So the surprise has a different quality. It, he, can't, he can't avoid the, the truth that this coming is surprising like a thief in the night. But it has a different color to it. It's not like the surprise of a thief. His coming is still unexpected. That, that's what is continuous through the image. It's unexpected. Like a thief in the night, that's the quality that uh, holds for those who are in Christ. But the impact and the reception are different. Surprise, yes. Impact, different. The key difference, he notes in verse 5, is that you are children of light, children of the day. We're not of the night or of the darkness. So there's an identity difference. Light. We know light in the scriptures. It's a frequent, frequent way of speaking about Jesus. He's the light of the world. While the apostles walked around with him, he was the light. He was the day. They were walking in the day. Uh, in the everlasting kingdom, we have these images from Revelation. There's going to be no sun or moon, no need for the sun or moon, for Christ himself will be the light. So when Paul calls Christians children of light, children of the day, he's speaking of this family relationship that we've been adopted into. We're children of Christ, children of this everlasting kingdom. He could have returned to the birth metaphor. He could have said, when the Lord comes, the birth pangs will soon be followed by joy. The nurture in light, the nurture in goodness, a life lived welcoming God will come forth in a birth of welcome. Just as a life lived nurturing rejection will produce destruction. A continual posture of welcome to the Lord issues in welcome of his joy and light. So now... As we continue on, now he extends the, the, the night-day metaphor into how we ought to live now as we wait. Looking at verse 6, because we're not of the darkness, let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and sober. Sleepiness here. You sleepy? You might feel sleepy. This is not physical sleepiness. The physical sleepiness is the metaphor. Sleepiness here refers to a spiritual state. It's one who's unaware, who's in a kind of spiritual stupor. The 17th century poet John Donne, favorite of mine, was fond of talking about sleep as an image of death. Sleep looks like death. It's working in that way here. Having a spiritual posture of sleep. Inward sleepiness. It's an image of deadness towards the light. Uninterest in the light. A kind of stupor towards Christ. So verse 7, those who sleep, 
sleep at night. We know this correspondence. So spiritual stupor, spiritual sleepiness belongs to the night, belongs to darkness. This is the correspondence he's working out. The opposite of spiritual sleepiness is alertness towards Christ, awakeness towards Christ, being wide awake spiritually, clearly understanding right and wrong, clearly thinking and seeing what's going on. Drunkenness and sobriety, those are paired in the same way. One belongs to darkness, one belongs to the night, one belongs to the day, to, a, uh, to the light. So the way of self-indulgence and confusion and blurry thinking, that belongs to darkness. Clear-mindedness belongs to the light, to the day. So verse 8, he says, since we belong to the day, and I'm addressing a church gathering. Let that we settle here. Since we belong to the day, let us be sober. Let us be clear-minded. Having put on the breastplate of faith and love and for a helmet, the hope of salvation. It's armor. For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through the Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us. So that whether we are awake or asleep, whether we're alive or dead, we might live with him. So Christian man, woman, child, God has not destined us for wrath, but for salvation. Whatever thoughts you have about the second coming and what that experience would be like if you are among those around. God has not destined us for wrath, but for salvation. You belong to the day, to Jesus, to his bright kingdom. And so, Christians, we are to have the mind and posture of that kingdom. Not the sleepiness and the drunkenness that comes with rejecting that kingdom or ignoring that kingdom. We're to have the posture of that kingdom. So he says, Paul says, let's be armed with faith and love and the hope of salvation. Let's be armed with it. Let's, let's be wearing faith and love and the hope of salvation. We're in a season of waiting. As the church has been from the ascension of Christ, we're in a season of waiting. Let's be armed with faith and love. In a time of waiting for deliverance, it's going to be qualities of the eternal kingdom, faith and love, that fortify us, that strengthen us, that enable us to stand in the challenges in the days of trouble. If you are in a day of trouble, it's the qualities of the kingdom. It's what is assuredly promised to you that fortifies you. 
So letting that eternal identity, what we shall be, shape us consciously, we have hope. Hope comes from that. Hope comes from the assurance of promises made to us. It's a hope that's secure, that it's anchored in Christ himself. So because we have this identity, and we can we are actually aware of it. We're alert to it. We can discern between good and evil. Because of this understanding, because of the gift of the clarity of Christ, we can live well and we can decide. We can decide. We can decide, I will no longer be conformed to the pattern of this world. I will be transformed by the renewing of my mind. I will work out my salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in me to will and to work for his good pleasure. I'll conclude with this. In a sense, we... We're very like uh, the people of Israel at the end of Joshua. Joshua chapter 24, they stood uh, on the edge of the promised land. The Lord had already verified and shown that he would be giving them victory. They had not fully taken possession of the land. And that moment, it's, it is in the Old Testament, it's like an archetypal moment for all Christians in this period of waiting, in this time where we are waiting for his return. Here's how this works. The promise of the inheritance has been given. Israel is soon to enjoy it, but they haven't yet. The promise is given. And Joshua presents the people with a choice. The Lord has verified his favor towards you, but you have a choice. Fear the Lord and serve him in sincerity and faithfulness. But if it seems evil to you, <laughs> what a way of saying it. If it seems evil in your eyes to serve the Lord, then choose this day whom you will serve. Whether the gods your fathers worship beyond the river or the gods of the Amorites here, you're going to worship somebody. That's as true today as it was then. We're going to worship something, someone. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. So just as they were given that, they were, they, they were soon to be given the land. They were soon to have enjoyment of the promises. We're also waiting for the enjoyment of that promised land. The new heavens, the peaceable kingdom, the new earth. The choice remains the same, though. I hope you feel that. You have God's promise. You have his guarantees. The guarantee of the blood of the cross. You have his favor, unshakable. You have his love. You have his continuous goodwill. You stand in grace. If you would keep alert... If you'd stay wakeful, alert now, 
If you'll let his spirit do his work in you, then you can begin enjoyment now. The enjoyment of that kingdom is now. Even amidst trials, even amidst troubles in this age, because the light of that glorious kingdom will shine in you. The light of who Christ is will shine in you. You're children of the day. So Paul concludes, and we conclude with verse 4, 18, and 5, 11. Echoes of the same idea. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. Encourage one another with who you are and what you shall be. And encourage one another and build one another up just as you are doing. We're not to do this alone. We're not to walk in these in difficult times alone. We can't do that. We're to encourage one another in who you are and who we shall be. Our Lord, we need your word. You know we continually forget. We continually slip into the defaults of fear of what's perishing, looking at what's in our hands and seeing it slip away and thinking that's all there is. Oh Lord, would you help us with these perspectives? Would you give to us eternal perspectives so that when we look at what is hard and what we're holding and is difficult, we would entrust you with it all and know that you have better promises. In Jesus' name.